The podcast is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and EverActive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we're joined by Natalie Costa from Alberta Health Services and Sarah Bala from Elk Island Catholic Schools to talk about weight-neutral approaches to physical activity in the school setting. Welcome. Thanks so much to you both for coming. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's exciting to be a part of the conversation, so thank you. So we like to start off the pod class by asking our guests what their go-to strategies are to take care of their well-being. So if you feel comfortable sharing, please go ahead. So my name's Natalie. I'm an ultra runner and I have a big passion for running. Uh, I do have some mental health disorders and physical health disorders, but running is the one constant in my life that helps me significantly from that mental, physical, and social standpoint. I've never been a person who worked out at home very much much pre-pandemic, but I guess since the pandemic started, we didn't have much of a choice. So Mm -hmm. I did end up splurging on my Peloton and now have a big home gym in my basement. So I do all my exercise there. I have a really great home routine and I just love it. I also like going out for walks with my dog. Exercise is my me time where I do a lot of my reflecting and de-stressing and I get to catch up on all my favorite podcasts. So it's always really exciting. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing. How about you, Sarah? Well, it's cool because I share a passion for the ultra running thing. And I would say that I'm a newbie to that activity for sure. But I love how trail running forces you to pay attention to the present moment. Like if your mind wanders and you trip over a route, you might tumble and be literally physically grounded. Mm -hmm. You know what? I need grounding in my life. So something that keeps me focused on the present is really good for me. And and that's what trail running does. And then I also have a love of yoga for some of the same reasons and the way that it helps me to focus on my breath in the here and now. And then I am really working hard on a nighttime routine that ideally in this perfect world includes tea, like reading a book and listening to some chill music. This mind of mine needs a little bit of encouragement and slowing down and transitioning from active and imaginative to more restful. And so I'm really attempting to learn and invest some time in a nighttime routine for me. Amazing. Thanks for sharing those strategies. I like those ideas. And I think you're right that a sleep routine takes time to build up, but that it's worth investing the time and setting that habit. Let's start off with letting you speak to your current role and how you consider or think about well-being through that perspective. So by day, I work for Alberta Health Services. I kind of have two roles. I'm a clinical exercise physiologist, and I'm also a client health educator. So I work specifically under the chronic disease management portfolio for the Alberta Healthy Living Program. So as my exercise physiologist role, I teach folks with chronic conditions how to exercise safely given their conditions, their limitations, what medications they're on. But most importantly, I teach them how to enjoy moving their bodies to help manage their conditions and improve their quality of life. And then as an educator, I teach a variety of lifestyle workshops to help also manage their chronic disease. So that's kind of my day job. By night, I also teach yoga. I'm the vice president of my local run club, and I also do art on the side. So I'm a commissioned artist, and I run local painting classes in my community. So since I do work in healthcare and I do work with the chronic disease population, I don't work directly with children or students in my current role. So that's why I'm so excited that Sarah is here, too, to touch on that aspect. But I do think that having these conversations with the adults in their life, so the parents, the teachers, the coaches, would be a critical step to shift this fat phobic messaging that we see in diet culture to more weight neutral one. It always starts with the adults because they're the role models to these kids. And kids are extremely observant and they pick up on all our eating and exercise behaviors since they mirror how we feel and the things that we say to ourselves and how we treat our bodies. For sure. Awesome. Sarah, you go ahead. Absolutely. I have the coolest gig. I'm a wellness consultant and a curriculum consultant for our school division. And so I get to connect with teachers and students and other partners in the well-being space 
to shine a light on the importance of well-being as a prerequisite to teaching and learning and also just simply living well as a human. I'm also a high school phys ed teacher and I get to support students in gaining confidence in their skills. So physical skills, emotional skills, and beyond. And I also get to journey with students to try to reconnect them with a love of movement that may have been squashed for some reason. So by the time a child gets to my class in the high school phys ed setting, often there are some experiences that they've been through that maybe have led them to falling out of love with movement. And so I kind of make it my mission to help them fall back in love. And I also have coached volleyball and basketball for the last number of years. And that's a role which I absolutely love. And another space to kind of learn alongside and to model some really positive practices for young women. In my case, I've mostly coach young women in my career so far. And so in the coaching space and the teaching space, I get a real thrill out of exposing students to something new that they might like and would consider doing outside of school. And then most importantly, I'm a mom to a wild child of a three-year-old. And so that mama bear lens on life has given me such a cool perspective to take into this role. I have a monthly wellness newsletter that I get to share, and I try to integrate toddler wisdom <laughs> into, into each one and share a little bit of my insights gained from watching my little guy move through the world. So, Oh, I love that. You come from such a variety of strengths and experiences that will really add to our discussion on weight-neutral approaches to physical activity. On the podcast, we have done other podcasts on the concept of weight-neutral well-being, primarily with Dr. Shelley Russell Mayhew and then dietitians Anna Lutz and Catherine Zavodny. Today, we're going to talk about how the concepts of weight neutrality could apply to the many forms of physical activity that occur in the school setting, whether it's recess, physical education, class or school sports. But in case listeners haven't listened to those episodes and are new to the concept of a weight neutral approach, let's take some time to talk about that concept. Sometimes people use the words weight inclusive or body positive or health at every size to talk about health in this way. How would you explain what it means to be weight neutral to someone who is new to the concept? When you're talking about weight inclusivity or body positivity or this health at every size concept, we're referring to accepting your body just as it is. So without focusing or putting that lens on weight or weight loss as indicators for our health or our worth. So again, in the healthcare world, we're starting to see a shift in this direction, but unfortunately, there's still healthcare providers that still hold these fat phobic beliefs and weight bias. And what I mean by that, I'm saying... Some people might have the thoughts that people in larger bodies are lazy or they neglect their health or they're non-compliant with health recommendations. And all this does is that leads those people in larger bodies to not getting the care that they need. They get denied treatment options unless they lose weight or they even avoid just seeing a healthcare provider because they know essentially that they're going to feel some shame after the visit. So when we're talking about weight inclusive care, we're focusing more on or not on weight or size as the focal point of treatment. So we're looking at more of those weight neutral aspects, emphasizing more of those non-weight based markers as indicators for health. So for example, in my clinic, I now have learned over the time, I don't weigh my patients anymore. We don't talk about weight or BMI or anything like that. But what I do talk about with them is, you know, how is your relationship to food and exercise? What's your sleep patterns like? Tell me about your stress and your stress management. Those are much better indicators of someone's health than the number on the scale. So in the education space, and I think just for a lot of us to take a weight neutral approach requires just as much unlearning as it does learning. It's a bit like swimming upstream against a current of weight centric messaging. So we've been immersed in a world that delivers so many messages around food and the body, many of which are actually not supportive of our health. And so a weight neutral approach celebrates and normalizes body diversity It uncouples that tight link between weight and health that we have literally been sold to believe and internalize. And a weight-neutral approach removes the judgment, categorization, and shame around some of the food rules we've been taught to abide by. And I think it connects us with the sensory experience of food and of movement, how important the eating environment is, and how complex actually the ecosystem is that we live in and how there are many different influences on the way that we form our own beliefs and practices. So to me, a weight-neutral approach creates a more welcoming, inclusive, and supportive space for all children and adults as well. 
Yeah, such a good point that everyone benefits from this approach and that it truly is more health promoting than the traditional weight centric paradigm that many of us have grown up in or received a lot of messages from. How did you both come to learn about the weight neutral approach to health? I'm curious to know if it's something that you've always practiced and endorsed or have come to through some change. I came to understand and appreciate this paradigm through my own recovery from a disordered relationship with food and a compulsive relationship with exercise that really was not healthy for me in any respect, physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, even financially. And it took a long time to replace some of my ideas around food and movement with more weight neutral beliefs and values. It's been an evolving practice in my life. And I wonder if that's the case for you. Oh, I speak into the choir. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so this comes from years and years of struggling with my relationship with food and exercise. So similar to you, that kind of compulsive exercise, Mm -hmm. even potential disordered eating patterns as well, too. But about six years ago, I learned about intuitive eating from a good friend who also happens to be a registered dietitian too. So that was really, really life-changing for me. So it's been a really long, complex journey, years of therapy, uh, and kind of like Sarah mentioned, just a lot of years of unlearning to kind of shift into these weight-neutral practices and mindset, both professionally and personally as well. I do find it kind of ironic that I ended up choosing a career in exercise physiology because I was that kid who did everything in their power to avoid gym class. And especially on those fitness testing days, that beep test, the sit-up test, the push-up test. And I just remembered hating sports and hating activities because I guess I never really felt good enough. Like I wasn't fit enough. I wasn't fast enough, skilled enough. And I just dreaded it. And I remember I ended up breaking my finger. I think we were playing basketball. I broke my finger. And most people would probably be upset, but I was ecstatic because I got to sit out of gym classes (laughs) and I got to miss fitness testing day. So I felt like growing up, my relationship to exercise, it was viewed more as punishment Mm -hmm. instead of something pleasurable. So of course, anytime we view something as punishment, we're going to do everything in our power to avoid it. And Again, this took years and years of unlearning, but this is a part of the reason why I feel it's really important to spread this message, especially to the coaches and the teachers and the parents, because they're the role models who could really reframe some of these ideas that we have around food and movement. So hopefully we could instill healthy habits and children will learn to find pleasure in moving their bodies without that focus on weight or what our bodies look like. Natalie, I think your experience in phys ed is so common to what students now still experience sometimes coming through that system. And so although it breaks my heart a tiny bit to hear that was your experience, it like lights the fire to Hmm. continue to share that there is another way, a more inclusive way that drives people towards a love of movement instead of away from it. So I'm thankful that you shared your experience. And so hopefully as we move through the conversation and people get to listen to this podcast, we can uh, maybe shift some mindsets. Mm-hmm. And then my journey towards a weight neutral approach started fairly recently. I had my son just over three years ago now. And so that's when my journey in all of this really began. As my son approached that six month old mark, it occurred to me that it was time to introduce food. (laughs) And then I began to wonder how I could start him off with a healthy relationship with food. And how could I communicate my love for him within the approach that I decided to take? And so I began to do some research and found myself in a whole new universe of information. I think that's my best way to describe it. I read some books around intuitive eating, some related articles, and took what we call a deep dive into learning as much as I could. And the more I learned, the more my home life and my work life collided into this realization that the approach we took to encourage healthy eating at school wasn't in line with this new information. And I should clarify that the information is new to me. I'm so grateful that this field has been around for years and the research is being done to help us modify and update our best practices. But at the time, the information was new to me. Mm-hmm. So working in the school well-being space has connected me with some great humans. And so I reached out to that network and then was connected with a letter that Dr. Shelley Russell Mayhew wrote. And her words resonated deeply. And I reached out to her on a prayer 
hoping that maybe she might have some guidance that would help us rewrite our nutrition practices. And then fast forward a few weeks and I found myself in a Zoom call with Elizabeth and the team from the Body Image Research Lab from the University of Calgary. And it was this incredible brought to reality moment. Hmm. And then fast forward another 18 months and our school division is about to release our revised guiding document that looks at food and body through a weight neutral well-being lens. And our staff are continuing with professional development that supports this approach. So it has been an incredible process to be a part of. And it began with a decision on what to feed my little guy. Hmm. Thank you for sharing. And I think both of your stories highlight how this is often something that combines both personal and professional motivations, because we all have bodies, we're all in this culture that really does communicate a lot of messages about weight and food and movement. And we have to learn for ourselves. And then also we have the people that we work with through our work that we want to positively influence as well. So I think your stories really highlight that. Let's compare a weight-centric approach to movement and exercise to a weight-neutral one. What do you think are the key differences? Yeah, so when we're talking about more of a weight-centric approach to movement, we're talking about putting the sole focus on the number of the scale as the biggest predictor of one's health. So the research has actually shown that this model could actually increase weight stigma and weight cycling in folks. Whereas when we're looking at more weight neutral models, kind of like we see within that health at every size approach, the focus is more on engaging in these healthy behaviors, promoting more of that weight inclusivity and focusing on the thousands of other benefits of exercise that have nothing to do with weight. Because we know that people in larger bodies can be fit and that fit and healthy bodies come in all shapes and sizes. But unfortunately, thanks to diet culture, a lot of us are conditioned to associate weight loss with exercise. So where it comes down to is really starting to shift our focus on how it feels to move your body rather than that caloric burning effect of exercise. So that's one thing that I do encourage people to look at is just focusing on how you feel when you do move your body and when you do exercise. Do I feel more energized? Am I calmer? Do I feel stronger? You know, how does that impact my day? Do I sleep better? Think about those benefits of moving your body that have nothing to do with weight. I think in a weight-centric approach to exercise, the goal is often to shrink and shape our bodies. So as Natalie was saying, exercise is used as a form of punishment or is participated in out of this obligation to fit an impossible standard instead of connecting to how it might help us feel good. So then a weight-neutral approach to physical activity focuses on connecting us to our bodies, focusing on the joy found in movement, and considering the other incredible ways that moving our bodies can boost our well-being. So as a physical education teacher who teaches high school students, at a pretty important time in their development, I see how the weight-centric approach to exercise impacts them. The ways that students have internalized diet culture and weight-centric messages often presents itself as either like an intense self-consciousness, an avoidance of physical activity, and then especially around grade 9 and 10 students actually falling away from physical activity, sport, and movement because they haven't had positive experiences. They've experienced teasing or judgment around their bodies and haven't had a chance to build the necessary confidence for a love of movement to be nurtured. The joy in movement's been diminished and at worst extinguished in some of them by grade 10. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's heartbreaking. And then coupled with the stats of how many young women and girls fall away from sport around that time, something that's deeply concerning. And so for others, if they maintain their participation in physical activity, it becomes sometimes a preoccupation with exercise or taking part in something, not because it's fun, but it's a way for them to fit a mold or a certain identity. So I think that's how weight-centric messaging around physical activity can appear in the classroom setting. And hopefully it's something that we're able to shift. Absolutely. And you've brought up an important point here that because students' bodies are constantly changing and developing, their growth is uneven. Sometimes students will have a height spurt before a weight spurt or a weight spurt before a height spurt. And these changes make them self-conscious anyway. And so whenever their bodies are on display in physical activity situations, that can only heighten that. So it's understandable why these things happen. And we see students decreasing in their participation. But again, concerning. So what could we do to make them feel more of that connection and enjoyment in movement? 
School leaders, teachers, and coaches, of course, want the best for their students, but sometimes the weight-centric approach can inadvertently be reinforced in schools. What are some of the ways that a weight-centric mentality may show up in schools with respect to physical activity? Now, I don't work in schools, but I still hear about this from some of the younger kids I know. But again, kind of going back to the fitness testing days, I think that's one thing that always sticks out. And even things like weighing students, body composition testing, so skin fold measurements, this was a thing when I was growing up, or using a BIA scale to kind of look at body composition. Sometimes even in, you know, assignments, they might have food tracking or journaling assignments where they're looking at calories in versus calories out, or they're categorizing foods into binary categories like good or bad foods. And this just starts to change our relationship with food. And we know from a fitness testing standpoint, there's a lot of debate about this. Some people think that, you know, this is a way to motivate students to improve their fitness and promote healthy lifestyles. But over the years, looking at the literature and again, all the personal experience that I've had and I've talked with other people, we know this to not be true. There's been a lot more recent research looking at the psychological impact of fitness testing. And in these studies, they asked a whole bunch of adults about their most traumatic experiences of phys ed classes. And often fitness testing is that first thing that they do mention. And they did another study looking at teens and talking with teens. And a lot of the students reported that they felt that fitness testing was punishment. And roughly, I think it was about 40% of the kids reported crying or getting upset, feeling anxious and embarrassed and would do, again, everything in their power to try to avoid it. And we got to think too, what's the purpose? What are we doing with this data? And typically we want kids to build that physical literacy and we want these kids to be lifelong exercisers because we know how good it is for our health. And so we want to hopefully start to make that shift and associate movement with pleasure and not punishment. But Sarah, you probably have a much better idea of what's still going on in the schools now. Yeah, I think that weight-centric mentality can show up in a few different ways in the school environment. I think it plays out among students often like this. So there's this stigma that's attached to being in a larger body. And there's some teasing that can happen in a physical education context that's usually quite under the radar. Like when teachers see a student being treated unkindly, teachers step in. They want the best for their students. But I think often when we're talking about weight-based teasing and bullying, it can often be a very under the radar thing happening. And so if a student's not coming forward with that, or a teacher is missing some of the signs that may lead us to be aware of it, then that weight-based teasing and bullying doesn't get addressed appropriately. And in that silence and in that non-action is a reinforcement that that behavior is okay. And so I think that's one way in which that weight-centric mentality can kind of stay alive in a school environment in the student case. But then if we talk about teachers and our teaching practice, we want the best for our students. Educators have beautiful intentions. Mm -hmm. And so we want them to live healthy, meaningful lives. And we're often doing the very best we can with the information we have. But even beneath our awareness, weight-centric mentalities play out in the words and the practices of what we do. And they can look something like this. So perhaps we make assumptions about students and their interests and capabilities based on their appearance. So our unconscious bias can maybe often get in our own way of leaving room for what a student is capable of. Bodies, as Elizabeth said, are on display in phys ed and in coaching environments. And so we need to ensure that we don't comment on student bodies. We model that. Even if we think we're being kind or complimentary, that we simply don't comment on other people's bodies because we never know how that comment will land with somebody else. Addressing how that weight-based teasing and bullying can kind of exist in a school, it's up to us as teachers, coaches, and educators to be diligent in being aware of our surroundings and the conversations happening among students. And then I think there's an important conversation around locker rooms and how that is kind of this extension of a physical education class and that our responsibility extends beyond the walls of the gymnasium. And so when we hear of something happening in a locker room space, for example, that we call it out, that we 
guide some conversations around expectations in those spaces and how to respect each other within them. And I think it goes beyond addressing it. We need to talk about exactly what is wrong with a situation that may involve weight-based teasing. So making sure that the student who was the victim of that action knows that it was unacceptable that their body was talked about knows that we as teachers are sorry that happened to them, that they didn't deserve it. And then, of course, addressing the issue with with students who may have said the words or been a part of the actions that weren't respectful. Mm -hmm. And I think just simply setting that expectation that we don't talk about other people's bodies is quite powerful. And it's not something that is called out often in the way we move through the world. This reminds me how this plays out in schools of a semester in phys ed when I had the knowledge finally to set up some expectation in my class with a weight neutral approach in mind. So at the beginning of our semester, I talked with our students about how powerful language is and that it's important we create a safe and inclusive space for everybody. So I set just the expectation at the start that commenting on other people's bodies just isn't something we're going to do here in phys ed. And so later that semester, we had a trip to the swimming pool scheduled. And I'm sure many other educators can relate to the swimming pool field trip phenomenon. (laughs) It's where your attendance plummets on the day you have a field trip to the pool. That's what that is. And so why does that happen? Well, there's this intense vulnerability around bodies being on display and a bunch of negative past experiences that come into play. So if our bodies are on display in phys ed when we're fully clothed, imagine the vulnerability of wearing a swimsuit around your peers. And so I addressed that concern in the days leading up to the trip, reminded students that we're going to have fun. The purpose was enjoyment to have a good time and that we were all going to uphold the rule of not commenting on other people's bodies. Um, And I'm sure that I had better attendance on that day because we talked about it, because we addressed the concern and potentially created a bit of a safer space. So I can feel that shift in myself from being a new teacher to a bit more of an experienced teacher and my role in creating comfortable spaces, getting students connected to recreation spaces, and then stressing more the importance of play and fun and enjoyment than I would have earlier in my career. And so we could talk for days about how some of these (laughs) situations play out in school, but that swimming pool field trip story just really pops into my brain. Yeah, I think you mentioned a good point too, just watching and commenting on other people's bodies. And a lot of the time, even us adults don't realize that we're doing it. I don't know how often I walk into a situation or you hear, oh my gosh, you look great. Have you lost weight? Or, you know, things like, hey, oh, you're looking so good. And, you know, while that might seem completely innocent and meant to come off as a compliment, here we're putting the emphasis on their appearance or weight. So let's say, for example, let's say they did lose weight. We have no idea how they lost that weight, if they're going through disordered eating or movement patterns or they're restricting themselves. So essentially what you're doing when you're saying, you know, hey, you're looking good, you're essentially reinforcing those behaviors. So they might hear it as, oh, this is good and people are noticing. And then that's when that cycle starts to repeat itself. And kids listen to these comments as well, too. And so what the kids might be taking away are, oh, so it's good if somebody loses weight and it's bad if they gain weight. Or they might see it as appearance is important and noticed. So this is where, again, looking at it from the adult standpoint, the teacher's just shying away from compliments and greetings revolving around someone's weights or looks, but instead of maybe focusing on more of the, you know, other interesting parts of their personality or any kind of efforts that they made, or even how they're feeling instead of any mention of their body or looks, because this does, again, it translates into these kids. Absolutely. And what came up in my research that was surprising was that even comments on height can start to influence how people feel about their bodies, especially male students are sensitive to messages about height. And so these seemingly innocent comments or compliments about like, you have really long legs, that's going to make you a fast runner. Students are absorbing and learning from those comments. So if you just kind of adopt the approach, like Sarah said, of we don't talk about people's bodies and also bring the students in on that. It's a small tweak, but it really can have such profound ripple effects for all of the people in that school community. Absolutely. Those ripple effects can extend positively or negatively. So it's like Mm -hmm. when you throw the pebble into the lake, what kind of ripples are you wanting to create? 
So how can we shift towards a more weight neutral approach? You've shared some of the small changes that we can make. What are some other impactful strategies that teachers can adopt to make sure that all students, regardless of their size, feel like they can participate in physical activity comfortably at school? If we're really looking at the psychology and if we're thinking about our unevolved caveman brains that we're still living with. We are literally hardwired through evolution to avoid pain and seek pleasure. And so our brains avoid exercise when it's viewed as punishment, but our brains seek ways to include exercise when we start to view it as a celebration. And if you think about it, exercise really is a celebration, a celebration of what your body could do for you, all its abilities, you're able to run or move, to breathe, to function in this world. I think it really starts around our own mindset and language when we talk about movement. So when we shift that focus of movement away from manipulating your body's shape, but rather, again, to those other hundreds of benefits that we see, what happens? We know exercise starts to become pleasurable. And if we're thinking back to the science, when we know that the brain is wired to seek pleasure, we start to now find ways to include movement in our days and to start to have a healthier relationship to movement and our bodies. So I think the first steps would be A, to educate the students on the benefits of exercise without that focus on weight or body. And we could also teach students too that healthy comes in all shapes and sizes. Yeah, if the student is a higher level athlete, we might want to look at some exercise parameters or different assessments to measure and evaluate their, you know, their endurance, their strength, their power and their speed. But we could still stray away from using those parameters that focus on weight. So not bringing that scale out, not bringing out the measuring tapes or the calipers or checking BMI. Educators have always been in control of the how. So no matter the content that you are sharing with and teaching your students, we have this ability, knowing what we know around some best practices with this approach to teach in a way that is supportive of healthy relationships with food and body. We've said this many times, but those language shifts are the biggest game changers. It's within my control. It's easy to implement and it makes a huge impact. So considering in the way I speak, what phrases and words I can remove, what phrases and interactions I could maybe shift, and then maybe what language I want to add. And then focusing on body functionality and joy of movement. So talking about all of the amazing things our bodies can do. And how important it is that our bodies are capable of these things as opposed to what our bodies look like. And that if our bodies look a certain way, that doesn't mean that we're capable of some things and not of others. I think that body functionality, like our bodies do such amazing things on their own without us even having to try. And that's a really cool conversation. And then when we do put some effort into it and some practice, there's these really incredible talents and achievements that can come from that too. And so I think modeling and creating opportunities for joy in movement expose students to a wide variety of activities that they could fall in love with. And so we can consider, is there joy in fitness testing? And what are some other (laughs) opportunities we can create that, that foster joy? Because that is an important element in keeping our students moving for the point of feeling good and learning what they're capable of. And then I think there's some shifts that we can make in adapting our learning materials and the activities that we choose to do with students. So things like seeking out visuals that show diverse body shapes, sizes, and abilities is important. How can we provide images that counter the ones they are inundated with in other areas of life, particularly social media? How can we provide a counter narrative to that? And then removing any activities that require students to track food or exercise. That's, I think, a traditionally accepted form of an assignment, but one that has the potential to cause harm. Therefore, that's enough reason just to avoid them Mm -hmm. and, and modify those activities. Focus on conversations and reflections around the sensory experience of food, how we're able to celebrate culture through food and movement and family traditions. And then this is one that's really stuck with me, removing numeric discussion around food and weight that might show up in a variety of subject areas. So considering how those numerics may show up, knowing that they aren't necessarily healthy for us to be discussing, and then thinking of ways that within your curriculum, you could do things differently. So some practical strategies, but then it boils down to being 
that supportive person and being just really intentional with the words we use and then finding ways as we're ready to to maybe change some activities we do in the classroom. Yeah, such a good point. And I know that those tracking assignments are a really common interpretation of some of the health outcomes. And there are many people that do those assignments and don't have any issues. It is, of course, those that are maybe vulnerable to being rigid in their thought patterns or preoccupied already with the goal of weight loss, where an assignment like that can just add fuel to that fire. And there's clear evidence that the risks of that are not worth any potential gain. So looking for alternative ways for students to learn about balancing their food choices and pursuing physical activity without that personal tracking is really important. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about school sports, which may be in the form of intramurals or those more organized teams that Sarah has coached at the higher level, especially at that high school level. These can get quite competitive and intense. Sometimes scholarships are on the line and staff and students alike can really get into the goals of both individual and team performance. I find the research on the impact that sports can have on body image really interesting. On the one hand, sports can be a powerful protective factor and help someone develop a positive and healthy relationship with their body where they see their body as powerful and strong and think about that functional aspect of their body. But on the other hand, sometimes sports activities can be a risk factor for someone's body image if the teacher, coach, or the sport promotes a preoccupation with dieting and weight to improve appearance and performance in the sport. So it really can go either way. So how can we make sure that school sports are landing on that protective side of the spectrum? What are your ideas on how we can make sure that sports participation is beneficial for students' holistic well-being? Well, we know that most kids benefit, like you said, physically, socially, psychologically from participating in sports. But when we're looking at the research, we are actually finding higher rates of disordered eating and behaviors and higher body dissatisfaction in those who participate in those sports that value leanness. So things like gymnastics, ice skating, weight division sports, distance running, aerobics, endurance sports, and all of those things. And unfortunately, over the last few decades, we know that eating disorder rates are higher amongst athletes compared to non-athletes. What we do know is that eating behavior is extremely personal (laughs) Mm -hmm. and is heavily affected by the environment. And like Sarah mentioned, we have all this access to a lot of misinformation too on social media or maybe from your coaches who may or may not have any nutrition training whatsoever. And I think that also comes down to knowing what's in your scope of practice and what's out of your scope of practice. There is a lot of nutritional misinformation that could lead these athletes down a path that could negatively affect their performance, right? Causing them to suffer injuries during sports or what we call the female athlete triad, which is that menstrual dysregulation or amenorrhea, bone density loss, fractures, low weight. And this is a time where kids are growing. There's a lot of growth and development happening in these kids and they're starting to see changes in their body composition. Their hormone levels are fluctuating. There's a lot of metabolic fluctuations and all of these things can impact their health in the future and also their relationship with food. So This is a critical, critical time in their life where it's really important for them to establish a good foundation and have a positive lifelong relationship with food and exercise. Yeah, I think sometimes in the school setting, we have this idea that sports teams are this entirely separate world from school. Like we can uphold all of these positive practices within a physical education context, but then once we enter the sports team realm that students are different in some way and maybe less vulnerable to messages. And so I think remembering that school sport is a learning environment as well, helps us to maybe navigate that coaching sport context a little better. Yeah, I think it's an important conversation. So some things to consider is, again, being mindful of our language, focusing on body functionality, but then having some way to keep our own internalized biases in check, like some way to self-reflect often enough that you can pause, maybe think back to a practice you ran, and then maybe ask yourself some questions, not in a way that's going to make you feel guilty or shameful, but hmm, did I uphold a positive environment where I am weight neutral in my approach? Like, do my athletes feel 
better about their bodies after my practice or potentially worse. So some check and balance as far as keeping ourselves in that mindset. And then I think just challenging some of the ways that we look at bodies and associate those with certain qualities. So thin does not equal improved performance. So reminding ourselves, reminding our coaching staff of that. And then are we linking positive qualities in sought after athletes to their body shape and size? Are we associating a certain quality like speed with only a certain body shape? And then being able to kind of dissolve that and look through a more objective lens. I think that we have our biases entrenched into the team selection process. So making a team and making cuts as well. And so how do we consider the tryout and team selection experience and all of this? What we do now at our school, as opposed to what we did before, is we provide when we make cuts. So a team is made, there are athletes who don't make the team. And if we go back to this conversation around junior high, high school being this critical time that some people can fall away from sport, how then do we counter the disappointment of being cut from a team with some encouragement to keep moving or to keep going in that sport? And so when a team is made, we, instead of posting a list, we talk to each individual who tried out. And then those that didn't make the team get a letter of encouragement so that it includes some community sport opportunities, encouragement to continue. And then that interpersonal interaction that focuses not on the reasons they got cut, but on how they can stay connected to the sport why it's important and why they're valuable. That was certainly a blind spot for me, the beginning of coaching. And so I think it's nice to have shift a little bit in that practice. I think it's interesting to think about too, the messages sold to female athletes in particular, that reshaping your body is like a positive byproduct of their participation in sport. Mm -hmm. Sometimes this message is sneaky. It's not necessarily overt. Students aren't coming onto a team necessarily to shape their body, but we're like, oh, and your arms are toned too when we do this. And it's like, well, no, that's not the point. (laughs) That's not why we're doing this. (laughs) Yeah. But sometimes these messages just kind of seep in beneath our awareness. So just checking what we say around drills and their intent and making sure that we're focusing on those well-being gains and those strength gains and those strategic skill-based gains rather than ones that might be attached to shrinking or reshaping a body. And then I think also, if we just focus on staying in our lane, I think teachers, educators often feel like there's a lot being added to our place and that we're responsible for many things. But if we stay in our lane, when we're talking about sport, let's say, we can address the comments that come up, create teachable moments. If we have that opportunity, we can address weight-based teasing and bullying on our teams. We can invite athletes into conversations about the pressures they face to conform to a body ideal. We can find ways to create team cultures that are inclusive and supportive. And then if we're in our lane, we don't need to share specific nutrition information or comments on body. We can refer to professionals like dietitians, but you can consider what's within our scope to teach and share. And then some of the things that just might be outside of that. Yeah, such a good point. And I love the idea of an encouragement letter in the selection process. I've seen in my kids how intense and competitive that can feel and how heartbreaking it is if you don't make the team. So I love that suggestion to not only soften the blow of the cut, but to hopefully foster that continued practice of the sport. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Just like such a mindset shift that I didn't consider early on. And I think that leads into one more point, Elizabeth. How do we share these positive practices, this weight neutral approach to athletics with our community coaches, our volunteer coaches who aren't staff members, who maybe don't have the access to the staff conversations that we do or the professional development experiences? How can we extend what we know and those supportive practices beyond our own teams and ensuring all coaches kind of have a guide to go by? That's something for us to, I think, consider too in our schools. Yeah, maybe you could share this podcast. I'm so glad that you brought that up because those volunteers that coach in schools are amazing. Yeah. And they have influence. They often volunteer or coach in other clubs. So this idea of a weight neutral approach coming from the school and trickling out into all of these areas in the community is really powerful to think about. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. 
yeah, that positive ripple effect again. Love it. Yeah. So how can we talk about food as fuel for physical movement and to replenish our body's energy stores, whether for the general student body or for those competitive student athletes, keeping in mind that there may be students who are trying to manipulate their body size and using their sport as a way to do that. You mentioned that, Sarah. And so they might be filtering our comments on food through that particular perspective. So what are your thoughts on how we can talk about food in relation to physical activity? Yeah, and I think we need to remember that food is more than fuel, right? It's joy, it's comfort, cultural, we have memories and experiences and emotions. And I think the important part is you don't have to miss out on life and restrict your favorite foods. All foods can fit. And this is where that concept of putting food into those binary categories, like this food is good, this food is bad. I think it's actually a very gray area. Mm-hmm. And intuitive movement, when we're looking from that exercise standpoint too, it involves being aware that your body will probably feel depleted if you don't fuel up properly, even though you might not feel physically hungry at that moment. So there's this thing called practical hunger, and that's essentially the anticipation of hunger or your energy needs before a workout or a practice or a game. And this is important to consider because our appetites aren't as reliable during a long practice or a workout. I think a great first step would be to know who your resources are. Make sure you have access to a registered dietitian in the school because again, they are the ones who have that extensive knowledge outside of that scope that we have and training in the field that can provide support to the coaches and the students when needed. So If the coach is like, this is way out of my wheelhouse, I have no idea (laughs) what to do from a nutrition standpoint, reach out to your local RD to find the strategies that'll work for them in their sport. Because every sport is a little bit different, but I think there's some similar concepts across the board. So just maybe teaching them how to prepare foods and snacks that will fuel them and satisfy their needs. So this could look like having a selection of foods that they enjoy and looking at more of those nutrient-dense, easily digested, well-tolerated foods. And this is a big practice that we do in our workouts and our practices. And then we also have to look at an eating pattern that promotes that healthy growth and development. So eating more throughout the day, focusing on maximizing your nutrition rather than focusing on foods to restrict or avoid. And keep it simple. Canada's Food Guide is the most up-to-date, evidence-based tool, and all foods could fit within that Canada's Food Guide, which is what I really, really love. And even in my practice, I have a lot of knowledge and skills and training in nutrition. However, my scope of practice doesn't go beyond Canada's Food Guide. So anytime something gets a little bit more individualized, that's where you have to reach out to a registered dietitian. But at the end of the day, we want to focus on a non-diet approach to nutrition. One that's weight neutral, one that respects body shape, body size, diversity. And I love to use the example of Coca-Cola because I don't know if you noticed this, Sarah, in your ultra endurance sports, when you go to the aid stations, when you look at the aid stations at an ultra, you see a table full of Coca-Cola, you get two butt brownies, you get all the chips, pretty much what looks like should be an eight-year-old's birthday party, right? (laughs) You get the goodies. But, you know, you look at it from a more weight-centric standpoint or more of that binary where we place foods in good or bad categories. You hear things like Coca-Cola is a poison. And you know why we use it in sport is because it gives us the calories. It gives us the energy that we need, that fast-acting glucose, a little bit of caffeine to get us through, easily digestible. So how come in one setting we could use it as a health food, but in another setting it's viewed as poison? So I think it's really important to look at food from that standpoint that food is food, unless you're truly allergic to it. Our bodies are going to utilize it at one point or another. Sure, there's foods that might provide a little bit more energy or nutrient dense or easily digested than others, but keep it simple and fitting in all your favorite foods. I think it's really important to keep that healthy relationship to food. Thank you, Natalie. I think that that statement, all foods fit, is so freeing for people, mm-hmm. adults, athletes, kids. I think that message isn't communicated often enough. And so to remember that all foods can fit, yeah, is incredibly freeing. 
I am just so thankful to be a part of this conversation. I know that teachers have been really curious about this question, coaches too. And since the beginning of this process, learning about weight neutral approaches, the question has been asked many times before, how do we talk about athletes and food as fuel and beyond? And so teachers are invested in supporting their students and their athletes and are seeking this guidance. So I'm just really happy to kind of learn alongside them through this. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So what could a teacher or coach start doing tomorrow to better support the well-being of their students from your perspective, based on what we've talked about today? In your opinion, what's a good first small step? Oh, we've talked about so much. (laughs) Again, I'm team getting rid of fitness testing. So of course, I'm going to start with that. But I think the teacher and coach could start to create programming that are not weight-centered, providing options to the kids to help make those programs more enjoyable, sustainable. And it doesn't always have to look like structured sports either. The movements that we teach to build that physical literacy could have more of an emphasis on play. So things like dancing around, skipping, making forts, you know, hopping around like frogs, whatever they have around them, we actually get quite a bit of skill and problem solving that develops in this age group by doing things like play. There's so many ways that We could get our bodies moving that doesn't have to look like structured sport or structured exercise where we could still enhance that positive association. Again, thinking back to our brains, our brains avoid exercise when it's viewed as punishment, but our brains seek ways to include it when it's viewed as a celebration. So I think it's really important and up to the adults in the kids' lives to practice this and be those active role models for the kids. It's that monkey see, monkey do, right? Words matter, language has power. And I think that's the biggest first step I think would be to take that. Yeah, I think it's a good opportunity to remind ourselves that as teachers, things don't need to be packaged as lesson plans or learning activities to be impactful. Those small shifts in language, like you said, and thinking about our school environment, the power of visuals, how we're modeling, all of those things don't need to be in the form of a 60-minute learning activity, but can have immense impact. Small first steps, like we said, not commenting on other people's bodies. And this one I love, bringing in a storybook, a children's book that looks at food or body through a weight-neutral lens. Children's books are such a beautiful way to open up conversation around food and body. And I've used the Sneetches and Shapesville titles shared with me on another podcast with student and teacher audiences alike. So adults and students, it opens the door to conversation. I totally agree. I think children's books are a powerful tool. I have had success using the Sneetches with high school students and Div 1 students. So yes. it can apply to all audiences. And I also really like the book Brontorina by James Howe. That's also another great one for that topic. It's about a dinosaur that wants to join a dance class. Cool. Anything with dinosaurs is fantastic. <laughs> um Children's books are just this magical thing. And then another thing you could do is spend some time reflecting on your class culture. Some of the routines that you have, is there like a tiny shift that could be made there? And that cumulative effect of small changes can add up to be so significant. You may be the one adult who holds space for a child to see themselves differently in a very positive way. And I think that that is an incredible opportunity. Well said, and a great note to end on, Sarah. There is so much potential here for teachers to positively impact students' lives. Thank you both, Natalie and Sarah, for sharing your expertise and the many ideas that you've brought to this topic. I'm sure there are going to be people listening that take some inspiration from your words. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us for another conversation on school health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and EverActive Schools. Special thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at EverActive Schools, or visit our website at everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, the podcast is dismissed. Thank you.